This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We offer our deepest respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. We all misbehave sometimes. Wanna change the world, indulge in some bad Hello and welcome to Bad Behaviour. I'm Rosalind. And I'm Nicola. So happy to have you here. So we are reaching on, this will be our 13th episode of the season. Isn't that crazy? That's so exciting. All these episodes under our belt, it's really given me pause to reflect on the incredible guests and season that we've created. Did that sound a bit arrogant? We're allowed to be. I mean, look, we've had some absolutely incredible guests that we've been privileged to talk to and learn from. So I'm excited about that. And that was a good diplomatic twist on me being a bit <laughs> a bit <laughs> egocentric. Okay, what I'm trying to get to is I was thinking about the very first episode that we ever put out in this season. Sam's episode, and it was about sex education and To give you a bit of context with what happened behind the scenes with that episode, it took us so long to get that episode ready to put out into the world. We had so much to learn. Exactly. And we also spoke to Sam for so long. Like she (laughs) captivated us with all these wisdoms. And so our interview with her was like two hours long. And when it came to editing, we were like, include it all. Like it's all important. Um, which didn't make for great listening because it was a lot of us both being like, oh my God, I didn't know that. Are you serious? And like, (laughs) we had a lot of us saying, oh wow, really? Uh, To cut out. (laughs) I was reflecting on it and I was like, wow, that was a key turning point for me in relation to how I speak about sex and how I think about sex. What a gift that is, to be able to have connected with someone who kind of changes your language and your thoughts and opinions around something that are so deeply embedded. Sex is such a shame-ridden subject and it's really, you know, it's hard for people to talk about. It's hard for certain aspects of it are hard for me to talk about, for sure. Like I get a bit blushy and like, blushy isn't a word. I get a bit red in the face. (laughs) We love coming up with these words. (laughs) Blushy is cute. I like it. What specifically changed from Sam's episode? Um, I think, well, one of the key things was this idea of like it being okay to be an adult and to not know about everything and to not feel ashamed for not knowing or to not feel a lot of shame for not having all these like super adventurous sexual stories to tell as well you know like just being okay to like meet myself where I am I think it was always like a bit of a pride thing for me you know when I talked about sex like it was I never wanted to like be super vulnerable with it because it was very confronting and like I didn't want people to think I didn't know something or that I wasn't cool enough to know something and it's like I think that's what one of the gifts from that episode was just having the permission to be like, okay, like we're all in different stages and like some people may know this stuff, but some people may not. And so when you have these conversations, it's that whole idea of taking what you need and 
you know, doing what you need with it. I think that's really beautiful. I think, um, yeah, it's really true. Sometimes the most important thing that you can say is I'm not sure. With things like this, it's not necessarily give you the space to research thoroughly all the statistics and all of that. That's not as important with this kind of subject, but it gives you the space to go, well, I'm not sure. So I'm going to feel my way through it, or I'm going to let myself sit here in the uncertainty and not worry so much about not being sure and just feel what I feel and experience what I experience until I am, or maybe you never are. (laughs) And I think it's so cool to think about how, with, you know, Instagram and like our access to so many like sex positive personalities, individuals truly have the capacity to kind of like rewire how you think about something, which is like, I don't know if that's just me being super basic, but that's like such a cool thought that you can just open an app on your phone and have someone who's just chilling on the other side of the world, living their life. And they have like a super healthy relationship with sex. You can kind of take bits from that and be like, cool, I'm going to, I'm going to implement this in my own life. And like, I'm going to let them lead by example. And I think our guest this week, she perfectly captures that experience for me because I adore her social media profile. She's taught me so much about sex and sexuality and pleasure and non-monogamy, all of which we'll be talking about in this episode. So I'm so excited to have what will surely be another turning point conversation. And I hope you enjoy. My name is Ruby Rare. I am a sex educator. I'm passionate about kind of everything that falls under the sex education and sexual health umbrella. Everything that I do comes from a primarily queer focused space. Me as like a happy little queer person. But because of that and because of my dual heritage-ness as well, I think I feel very passionate about inclusivity and accessibility when we're talking about sex positivity, sex education and sexual health. And I'm also non-monogamous and so just, you know, thinking about doing things in slightly different ways and talking about that in a way that is inviting and inclusive and like as scary as humanly possible, like not scary in any way (laughs) to, to people who are curious. That was a big old ramble, but yeah, just anything sexy. I love it. (laughs) You mentioned non-monogamy. Would you mind explaining what non-monogamy is? In most parts of the world right now, and for a while, I guess, the default relationship style has been monogamy, which is two people together. They are only having sex with each other. They are pretending that they don't look at or fancy anyone else ever, even if it's for a fleeting moment. And monogamy in kind of lots of traditional senses can also involve marriage and other structures like that. There is nothing wrong with monogamy. It's a style that works so well for loads of different people, but it's only one option. And non-monogamy is the kind of broad umbrella term for all the different ways that you can have relationships in a way that is not exclusively monogamous two people in a relationship just being together. I like the term non-monogamy because it's very broad and 
I think polyamory is like a buzzword that lots of people will have heard of and there can be lots of assumptions made about it. And polyamory can be one specific thing, whereas non-monogamy is kind of way broader than that. But it's basically just opening up our expectations and ideas of what relationships can be. What was your journey to non-monogamy and what are your favorite parts about being non-monogamous? Well, I mean, a fav- I don't think I'm having a great time being non-monogamous right now because the pandemic's really like <laughs> really killing my sex life right now as it needs to be like, it's fine. That can wait. But I have been non-monogamous for over four years now, I think. Yeah. I can't, I lose track of time, but yeah, for a while. And I became interested in it because I started to date someone who was polyamorous and who had two other long-term partners. And so it was a really nice introduction into the world. I recommend for lots of people who are interested to go out and read the sort of canonical books about non-monogamy and polyamory that are out there, listen to podcasts, listen like look at articles but for me I kind of stumbled upon it and had this really lovely eight months of just being almost a fly on the wall in another polyamorous structure and being a part of it but being being able to like ask everyone all of the weird geeky questions of like oh how does this work and and like how do you all feel when you have to talk about this and all that kind of stuff through that experience it showed me that it was really possible to have non-monogamous structures that were fun and that suited everyone and that were like full of joy and love and you know I I have a really early like memory in this process of waking up and the guy that I was dating and one of his partners like the three of us all like sleeping in the same bed together and then waking up and like them having sex and me sort of like being there and being a part of it but mostly just like watching these two people who love each other have sex and it was so nice it wasn't like it wasn't necessarily like really hot or sexy it was just really lovely to like be a part of that moment of love for me that was a really lovely like foundation to non-monogamy and then I kind of branched out on my own and been like a constantly evolving journey since then you know it's not just it's never been just one thing my relationship structures have changed and adapted because of the situation that I've been in in terms of like the time I can give to dating and sex and relationships I've been very busy for a couple of years and I've not been able to do much active dating and like meeting new people so it's been about reinforcing the connections that I have with existing people in my life for example and then hopefully when the pandemic eventually ends then I can go out and be like hey new sexy people come to me kind of like a constantly evolving journey which is really fun I loved your piece that you recently wrote about consent and polyamory I thought it was so beautifully written and I was wondering if you could speak about how the the whole piece is about consent in a polyamorous relationship and Do you have any tips for navigating consent in that space? I do. I I don't know how different they are to my tips for navigating consent in general. I guess the more people are involved, the more conscious you need to be about informing everyone of what's happening in the situation and being very upfront and honest about how you're feeling, about your hopes and your expectations and your fears and all that kind of stuff. So one common misconception about polyamory and non-monogamy is that it's just like, hardcore fucking 24 7 when really it's like a lot of emotional admin and like sometimes some sex (laughs) but (laughs) most of it is like big chats with people 
those chats are really important. The most important thing I can say in terms of navigating consent is like really learning to communicate effectively. And that is, you know, consent has to go into the ways that you have conversations with people. You can't just spring a big emotional conversation onto someone. You need to be able to ask for their consent, engage if they have got the capacity to have that chat with you right now, if they've had the time that they need to think about it themselves before you have that conversation. The way that we're taught consent really does a disservice to all of us and to consent in itself because it assumes that consent is primarily about sex when actually if you're doing it in an effective way, consent is something that you're weaving into your conversations and communications from the very beginning. It's like how you ask someone out on a date. That's navigating consent because you're saying, hey, would you like to do this thing with me? I would like to do this thing with you. So it's kind of just continuing that and carrying on. And a big thing with consent in polyamory is everyone being as informed as they need to be so that they consent to being in that situation. Because I've been in situations where people who I've been involved with have been falling in love with someone else and actually have withheld that information from me for a while and that actually impacts my ability to consent to a situation just thinking about it from like the absolute ground up like incorporating consent into everything that you're doing in all of your relationships absolutely I wrote I'm gonna quote you to you I wrote one of your quotes down for this question <laughs> it was polyamory has helped me improve the ways I communicate to assess what I want as an individual as well as how to navigate consent with others I feel like that is exactly what you just said, which is a lovely umbrella into all the different facets of consent. Nice. Past me said it far more um, concisely, <laughs> didn't she? <laughs> so polyamory and non-monogamy isn't something that we've spoken about on the podcast before which is super interesting and if I'm completely upfront and honest about it I don't know a lot about it like it's very all my experiences with talking about polyamory and non-monogamy come from being nosy and inserting myself into my friend's relationship I've not ever considered non-monogamy is something that I would partake in but I nonetheless think it's such an important thing to think about and also to think about in relation to like those foundational pieces of learning when you learn about sex because again like you're taught about sex and pleasure in such a girl meets boy and boy loves girl and only girl for the rest of their lives type of context that it's hard to like it's hard to stretch your your mind to include the idea that like many people can be in a relationship and have that be fulfilling and joyful. Well, we always get taught the default, right? There's always the norm and then you stray from the norm. And that's kind of a fallacious way to start. We shouldn't be saying monogamy is the norm. And if you do anything else, you're, you're not doing the normal thing. That's incorrect. I know many people who are non-monogamous. And so it's a bit damaging to say that as well. So I totally agree. I think my knowledge about polyamory, non-monogamy, it's all through 
people telling me about it. And also I have a thing where if I don't know something, I tend to dig until I know as much as possible. So I did a lot of reading about it. I used to read a lot of advice from blogs and things for people who were going into non-monogamous relationships, which was really interesting. Uh, the different kinds of relationships, you know, V's and triads and all of these things. And that was so fascinating to me, but I'm the same as you, Nikki. It's, it's not something that ever called to me personally. And I think that that's really important though, to make the distinction that we have learned enough to decide rather than we defaulted and stayed mm. that way. Yeah, that's such a cool idea. I like that a lot. Well, see, I don't even know. Like, can you send me those blogs, please? I want to learn all about all the names and the terms and everything. I'm like such a a newbie when it comes to even like when I was researching for Ruby's interview is probably when I learned the most about non-monogamy that I've learned in my life. It's a new thing to me. And like, I would say my experience is very much like hearing a bit from friends in open relationships and non-monogamous relationships and then also just Tinder, you know, like couples looking for third unicorns. <laughs> yeah, and being like so annoyed at that. So not necessarily like the best space to learn about different types of partnerships. Well, one of the things that really interested me was the idea of consent and non-monogamy, which Ruby mentions. I think that's so exciting. I guess for context, I love talking about consent. It's probably one of my soapbox conversations <laughs> that if anyone ever wants to talk about it, I'm there, I'm ready. I love to talk about it. And I was thinking about it and I think that I need to expand my rant. I need to add some more advice, some more thinking around non-monogamy and polyamory about, you know, that journey of consent when you're talking about more than one partner. That's really interesting. The piece that um, Ruby wrote about it is such a cool place to start. She really talks about incorporating consent like from the ground up and how like when there's more than two people it's it becomes like even more important as well like you need to work a little bit harder to be able to communicate effectively and make sure that everyone's on the same page and it was really interesting the story that she told about how she a non-monogamous relationship where the two other partners had been falling in love with each other and not communicated that to her and that's that's like another piece that I hadn't really considered because there's like a lot more feelings to account for as well it's not just about consent in terms of like when you have sex it's like also about consent in terms of what the relationship is yeah well consent in any situation is a journey and is a process and so it's never like great we've had enough of discussion about this <laughs> you're never going to stop talking about it and so as soon as you add more than one other person and even if you have someone and there's complicated kind of definitions there or maybe you have primary and secondary partners or, or whatever it is you know you have to be super clear and you have to navigate that all the time and you need to check in all the time and so understanding that it's a journey and that it's always evolving means that you need to be on top of where every person involved in whatever situation you have is at any time.
So I want to talk a little bit about pleasure. And one thing that I was introduced to through your Instagram page is solo sex. I've never heard that term before. And it's such a jazzy, cool term. I love it so much. I love it being described as jazzy. Yes, please. (laughs) Could you talk about why solo sex is an important part of pleasure? In reframing it as solo sex, the first really important thing in terms of like elevating it to such an important space when we think about pleasure, because I think as you were saying, like when we think about masturbating or wanking, like they're perfectly fine words. I have nothing against them. But when we talk about solo sex and partnered sex, it elevates solo sex to the same playing field as partnered sex. So we stop thinking of sex when we're with one other person or if it's in a hetero situation like sex when a penis goes into a vagina as real sex and everything else is kind of like put way down on the list of priorities and we don't give that much like time or effort to all of that stuff. I I really love thinking about it as solo sex because it is, as you were saying, it's like this beautiful adventure that you do on your own and that's great and it makes it sound like exciting and that's how it should sound. Solo sex is the way that we, that most people are first introduced to consensual sex. Like you are still navigating consent with yourself, even if it's very subliminal and you're not like doing, having those conversations like consciously, it is still figuring out what's right with your body and kind of communicating with yourself and like, you know, escalating things or changing things or just like exploring. And if we were all encouraged to explore solo sex in a time and at a place that was right for us. And also acknowledging that for some people, solo sex is just not like something that is interesting to them. People who are like on the A spectrum or maybe people who just like are only interested in having sex with other people. That's fine too. But I think for the majority of people who want to have sex with other people, having sex and knowing how to have sex in a way that's really exciting and nice with yourself is like the best thing that you can do to improve the sex you have with other people. Because then again, it all comes back to consent. Then you're able to communicate like pleasure focused consent to partners about what it is that you like and how you like to touch and be touched. I think if we could, if we could sort of rake away all the shame that so many of us have inherited about solo sex and that it's something that is I mean at the most extreme sinful and if not something that is kind of dirty or shameful or wrong particularly for women and people with vulvas that's something that we get taught a lot Um, and there's also the kind of weird humor side of solo sex when it comes to people with penises and men like growing up of thinking oh well if you're wanking, it means that you are kind of like a desperate, horny teen rather than just doing this thing that feels really nice. And why wouldn't you do something that feels really nice? Like, hey, I I totally get it. If we were able to kind of say goodbye to that shame, and I think a lot of our generation is doing that, but it's also very much about how we pass that down and how we ensure that the next generations have that even less and that we're engaging generations older than us who had a very different upbringing and kind of their flavor of shame is kind of different to ours and potentially stronger. If we can kind of all work together with that, I think it will really improve the attitudes that we have towards sex. Making this early development of sexual interest feel less kind of biblical 
biblically catastrophic. It's just like, it's a nice thing that feels nice for lots of people. So why wouldn't you do it? And if you do it in a safe way, then like, then great. I don't understand how people can not be, be pro solo sex. It's amazing. It's such a fantastic tool. You spoke a little bit about shame, which is one of the first things that comes to my mind when I think about solo sex and talking about it so openly and like with a lot of love too, I feel like that's so rare comes to to solo sex and, and for women seeking pleasure as well. So I'm wondering, did you kind of have your own unlearning shame journey with solo sex and do you have any advice for people wanting to start having more fun with it (laughs) yeah saying bye to the shame and hello to the fun um I definitely had that it's interesting me looking at myself online and and I am you know I'm a vulnerable person on like online platforms I try to be very honest with where I'm at in my life and and the stuff that I've experienced in the past but I am in a place now where I feel so confident and so like kind towards the the pleasure that I enjoy in my life and I also feel very kind towards the shame that I used to feel and some of the shame that still lingers that's the first thing I'd say that if people are trying to peel back that shame The shame from your past isn't going to go away, but what you can do is you can become friends with it and just look at it with some, with kind of kindness and forgiving and not like jump to criticism of this thing that you carried for a long time in your life, acknowledge it and kind of let it just sit next to you or near you. But I think shifting the attitude that we have with shame like that can be really helpful in the long term, because I think a lot of the time when people kind of get switched into the sex positive world, there can be this immediacy of like, oh my God, I know all of this stuff now. And I, what I want to do is throw all that shame in the bin and I want to buy 10 sex toys. And I want to like talk about being a slut to all my friends. Go, go, go now. And like, I love all those three things. I'm, I'm very sort of pro toys and being a slut and like acknowledging and binning your shame. But I think it's very difficult to do all of those things overnight. They take a little bit of time and it's a gradual process. And I don't think you can go from acknowledging your shame to it just not existing anymore overnight. Lockdown has kind of changed sex completely. Yeah, it's maybe put like a pause on a lot of people's exploration of their sexual identities potentially with in terms of partnered sex and I'm wondering for people who are craving that connection or are really feeling kind of thrown by the loss of it do you have any advice? I do have advice and also I I think it's very hard to give advice in moments like this because we're all struggling and no one knows what the hell is going on and it's you know it's really hard and The pressure to be having great sex all the time should be shed anyway, but particularly in the middle of a pandemic, like we do not need to be having mind-blowing, revelationary sex right now. It is okay to switch that off for a little bit and for solo sex to just be about comfort and nurturing and helping you get to sleep. You know, we, we don't need to be these like constantly adventurous sexual beings I totally appreciate that there are lots of people who are wanting that and who are kind of craving that as a form of processing all of the other stuff that's going on right now but I spent like the first four months of lockdown having so little interest in sex beyond very like routine 
wanking that was like it was a sort of small dance routine where I just like had it down. I knew exactly what was happening. I did the same thing every time. And it was just about comfort. It was like comfort eating for me. There's still a little bit of that that's going on right now that I'm finding really helpful. And I'm also slowly over the last sort of few months have been able to open up a little bit more and be like, oh, no, I remember this is fun. Okay, this is let's try this again. And like, you know, bring some of that old stuff back in again. But there's no pressure to be doing that quickly. That's, I think, the most important thing. There are lots of practical tips there. You know, the way that we are having sex using the internet is really changing the game. And I think I'm a big fan of a sexy voice note. I write about that in my book. Like, I think webcam, like Zoom sex or whatever we're calling it now is fun, but actually it just being audio there's something really hot about that for me so trying that trying different ways of having sex online provided that it is done in a kind of trusting as safe as possible way and if you're under 18 please do not do this it's super illegal you spoke about like craving that connection I've definitely experienced this and I have friends who are having similar experiences right now where what I'm missing isn't actually like penetrative or like genital sex as much it is that connection it's like feeling someone else's skin on mine and like really having that sense kind of coming back to me so something that I've done was has actually been watching porn in a way and watching porn especially like make love not porn or lustery or something those two are like two companies that show real life couples and people having sex. So it's very DIY, but it's also verified. And when I watch clips from both of those websites, it's really nice because you get a lot of the human connection and comfort and like people messing around and laughing and like what touch looks like. And I know that it's still through a screen, but it's really, really helped me. And just being able to do watch that while you're giving yourself a hug or like giving yourself a little massage or something, that connection I think has helped a lot over the last couple of months for me. So I really love this idea that Ruby talks about of becoming friends with the shame that you held in the past and not criticizing that part of your life or your journey with carrying that piece of shame. I think that's such a beautiful thing that I haven't really heard spoken about before. Like it's a lovely idea, particularly when it's in terms of sex and pleasure as well, because I think a lot of us are so quick to like shed the moments of change and jump to like this new knowledgeable self without acknowledging that, you know, we have changed and grown it's okay absolutely we all want to be worldly don't we we all want to we want to shed it and go I accept and I know and I am embodied and all of these things we've talked about I'm on the hill and my journey is behind me and I can come to you now with all of this knowledge and here I am worldly and complete and it's really not how it works (laughs) It's a really long process to not be ashamed of something. Sometimes the way that I think about shame as well is it's like one moment you're ashamed and the next you're not. Voila, you did it. You've unshamed yourself. Congratulations. And it's like, well, that may take 
years to do. Like it's such a long journey to let go of shame in general. And I think it's just such a a delightful idea that you can, you and your shame can cozy up on the couch together and you can be like, hey pal, like you, you were there, now you're not, but I acknowledge your existence and I'm glad that I worked hard to get rid of you you know, but you can stay on the couch, you know, like that's, that's the vibe. And I think it's a really cute vibe. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I absolutely agree. I mean, do you have an example of something that you've shed shame around? I think that solo sex is a really interesting thing to talk about when it comes to shame. And certainly like, I think that I'm in that in between stage with my like, not being ashamed of solo sex and masturbation. Like it's still like a pretty taboo thing in my head. Like I struggle to talk about it and like, (laughs) you know, I struggle to like talk about it in such a public way as well. Like it's weird to me. (laughs) So I can, from that experience alone, I know that I'm not fully free of shame when it comes to solo sex, but I certainly can point to how I was when I first started, when I didn't even think that like women could experience pleasure and I can acknowledge that I've come a long way from there. So is that a good example? I think that's a wonderful example and it's one I definitely resonate with. I feel like my my journey to, you know, stripping the shame from these kind of topics, it's funny, I think that it's a little bit more about, like my sex positivity is very much about being really supportive of other people doing whatever they want when it comes to sex, but not necessarily questioning or stripping myself from the idea of shame when it comes to me personally. I think that was very much my journey. And so it was sort of a little backwards in that way. It was never like I had an experience that showed me that I shouldn't be ashamed of something and therefore I can make friends with that shame and move on. It was more, I felt guilty that I was feeling a certain way and other people should enjoy it and I should be sex positive. So get over it, woman, and allow others to do that. And then through that, having to go, well, if you're going to be supportive of others, then you should try and think about how you feel about yourself. Definitely solo sex is definitely a part of that. It's still something that I don't really talk about. But if you want to talk about other people having it and how important it is for women to be allowed to or people in any part of the gender spectrum being able to enjoy themselves if they want, like I am so positive and passionate about that. But if you ask me about me, I don't have as much to say. (laughs) That's a, I feel like that's a classic example of like a, a coping mechanism, right? Like you, (laughs) I feel the same way with a lot of other stuff as like with, you know, we've spoken a lot about like body image and like the shame around that. And I, that's how I feel with that whole can of worms. Like I'm like, yes, good on you. You live your life. You love yourself. And then my internal monologue is sometimes like, yes, but you know, she can feel good, but not you. Don't you dare. So it's like, I get having that disconnection of like being able to support the concepts and like the joy that that other people are exhibiting when they go on that unshaming journey, but then it not setting in fully with yourself. Well, it's just so interesting that it just goes hand in hand, right? The guilt for not allowing others to 
and shame for yourself. Like it's just hand in hand. It's, It's two sides of a similar coin, if not the same coin. What do you mean guilt for not allowing others to? If you have a hang up about something, for example, solely sex, if you have a hang up about it and you feel shamed about talking about it and ashamed for doing it or shame for thinking about it, you can also feel ashamed and guilty for that because you go, well, I want other people to enjoy it. I want to be someone who's sex positive and open and open minded and worldly So, you know, and you feel guilty about your own shame because in some way it must be that you are are putting a little bit of judgment there if you're judging yourself. So it's sort of two sides of the same shame spiral. (laughs) The shame spiral. Wow. That's I know. I know that spiral well. (laughs) The title of my autobiography, Two Sides of the Same Shame Spiral. (laughs) But I think that's that's a part of it that not a lot of people talk about, you know, like the bit we can acknowledge, like you're self-aware enough to acknowledge what you're ashamed of. But that's different than working to like be friends with that shame, you know, like just by acknowledging its existence, you don't that doesn't eradicate it. It takes like, again, that's, it's what Ruby was saying, like with the sex positive movement in particular, like that process can be like painted as this very like quick shedding and like you shed this shame and you evolve into your new self. And it's like really is so slow. And like, particularly when trauma is involved as well, like you can't dictate that timeline. Like it takes, it could take a lifetime. It could take a month. It could take a year, you know? And it's, I think like shame is such a, a hot button topic like I don't I don't know if it's always been or if it's just because I've read Brene Brown this year and I'm starting to like see it everywhere that's what I really enjoyed about my conversation with Ruby was how much she was welcoming of like people's different timelines and people's different lived experiences and it's kind of like well you know just meet me where you are like and we'll go from there like you don't need to if you don't know something it doesn't matter no one's gonna make fun of you for it you wrote a book which that's so fucking cool well done I don't really understand how I did it, but yeah, I did write a book. It's incredible. And could you introduce us to your book and tell us why it was important for you to create this incredible resource? Sure. So the book is called Sex Ed, A Guide for Adults. It's my approach to sex education. So this is a book that has all of the sex ed that we deserved to learn at school, but probably didn't, plus now that we're grown-ups, we get to talk about it in a more nuanced but also more sexy and explicit kind of way. So it covers such a broad range of topics, but it's really like the kind of everything, most things I think you need to know to have a really exciting sex life. Just covers loads of different stuff, attitudes towards your body, solo sex, partnered sex. And some of it is like the navigating consent kind of broader topics some of it is really like specific tips of like hey here's how to go down on someone with a vulva from my personal experience (laughs) so it it's kind of broad and specific we covered kink we cover sexual assault we cover like 
the politics of sex and sex positivity. It's just really, really broad. And I hope that anyone who reads it leaves it feeling kind of empowered and able to make choices that are right for them and the other people in their life in terms of their sex. Just have like a happier, more informed time. Sex ed is normally targeted at like this straight white man model. So you rarely get any education that's kind of outside those boundaries. And I'm wondering how in your book you were able to include identities and communities that aren't typically spoken about in sex education. Like how did you how did you be inclusive when talking about sex? What are some things that you did? Well, it's inclusion is something that I've always felt very, very strongly about. So I am an ambassador for the sexual health charity Brooke, which is the leading sexual health charity for young people in the UK. And I worked there for five years. So I've done the going into schools and teaching about contraception and consent and going to youth clubs and handing out condoms. Like I've really earned my stripes (laughs) when it comes to sex ed. One thing that I love so much about the approach to sex ed from Brooke is that it always does come from an inclusive place and the mistake that people can make when we think about inclusion be it queer identities if it's around accessibility if it's around ethnicity and race if like whatever whatever it is that we're talking about it's easy for people to kind of tack that onto the end of the generic very normative sex ed that we receive rather than integrating it throughout I've learned from Brooke and my experience there. And I've made a big effort in everything that I've done since to really include, to kind of make it broad enough that it can include anyone, whatever I'm saying. For example, I'm kind of, I don't make assumptions about who you're going to be having sex with. I just, I keep it broad. I hate sex education that's like so when the man is doing this you can do this and it's like no 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 there's there's not there's not just one man one woman here you know we're mixing it up or like yeah my partner's non-binary or like there are six of us or I'm on my own but I want to try this so just to keep it as broad as possible and also a big part of inclusion is reminding people throughout education and particularly at the beginning that this is a jumping off point so for them to take what is useful for themselves No one is going to read this book, for example, and every single thing apply to them. And I think that's really important when we're thinking about inclusion. That applies to everybody. And we shouldn't be, you're not the odd one out if there's something that actually doesn't apply to your life, because we all experience that. It's just like taking what's useful for you and then me encouraging everyone to go back out into the world and like do more of this thinking and research and really make sure it applies to them. Right now, it's about being broad and welcoming and acknowledging that we're all different it's boring to assume that all people with a penis work in one way and all people with a vulva work in another way it's just not true so I go off the assumption that everyone works differently and that kind of then is helpful because regardless of your identity everyone's different do you have a lot about consent in the book as well as like a a core teaching so I'm wondering How do you think we effectively teach consent and what is missing from the way that we currently do it? Often when consent is taught, the the biggest observation I have is that when we teach consent, we're teaching what it is, but we're not very good at teaching how to do it. And that applies to the education that we receive in school. It applies to the conversations that we have as adults. Everyone has an idea of what consent is and it's 
obviously consent is so bloody important. Um, I'm not disputing that for a second, but it's been put in this place where I think it's quite scary for a lot of people because everyone's scared to get it wrong. The pressure is on because consent is suddenly this like big, scary thing. And it's like these serious conversations that we have to have all the time. And, you know, consent is really serious because when it goes wrong, it's horrible. I'm a sexual assault survivor. Like I, I wanted to include that conversation in the book as well, because I, I come from a very joyful place about sex education, but I can't do that without acknowledging the really shitty stuff that happens. But for the most part, sex is consensual. And sometimes people can get it wrong because they're not communicating or because they're kind of scared to say things or start a conversation. And those are the moments where we can really easily change things by just making people feel more confident to actually communicate, not just saying consent is important, you need to do it, but saying, hey, here's a way that you would start a conversation about consent. In the book, I've like put prompts of sort of conversation starters and, and how you can navigate these things and how you can react. And that if you experience rejection of some form, that's not the end of the world. People experience rejection all the time. And it kind of, when someone has asked something clearly and someone has rejected it clearly, that is consent working. That's someone withdrawing their consent in a clear boundaried way and I think that's a cause for celebration a lot of the time because people have asserted where they're at and what they do and don't want to do yeah it's just opening this up a little bit more and making sure that especially as adults we're keeping these conversations alive and not only talking about if you're like going out for brunch with your girls the next day and like talking about the sex that you had the night before like also being able to put consent into those conversations and like reflect on it with your partners as well as the other people in your life. The lid has been lifted off, but we just need to keep like throwing the conversation, the consent conversation out to the rest of the world now. That's like my mission. A lovely little phrase that a lot of people say is consent is sexy with what you were saying about how normally it's defined as like this really dry and like awkward conversation you kind of jump around it it's not part of like the sexual fabric of a moment so I'm wondering how consent can be sexy but consent is absolutely sexy like being asked what do you want to do right now like me and my partner a lot of the time when we start having sex kind of basically before anything's happened we're just like so what are you what are you in the mood for what do you want to do And it's really nice because it's just like, we have all of this stuff in our repertoire. We're not going to do everything right now. That's physically impossible. What kind of little things are we going to pull out of our sex menu right now? What are we going to choose tonight? And then we get to build an idea of what that sex is going to be like. And of course it changes and it adapts. And I think if you have a very, very clear roadmap of what the sex is going to be like, spontaneity might go slightly well that's not really a bad thing you're kind of you're figuring out a rough roadmap and then you're getting on with it and adapting and being playful with it but it's really nice to be able to state at the start like actually I'm not really feeling penetration tonight or like I could do something penetrative on you but I just I don't feel like that's right for me but so what about if we do this and this and this and then the other person says yeah that sounds great and I would love to do this as well you know you're kind of you're brainstorming together I just think that's really cute (laughs) So it is, yeah. Consent, consent is sexy. Consent is essential, but consent can also be really sweet as well. Absolutely. And when is your publication date and where can people find your book? 
So the book is out on the 29th of October, which is very exciting. And people can find it on Waterstones, has international shipping, but it's also on Amazon and lots of other places. And and if you want to buy it in a, a local independent shop, then please get in contact with your local bookshops or like sex shops and ask them to stock it because that makes a big difference for me in terms of like people having more interest in the book. I'm, I'm very pro things being bought locally and by like indie businesses. So if that's something that you want to do, you've got to make that happen. so much to Ruby for taking the time to chat to us. It was such a wonderful conversation and it truly was so meaningful to connect with her. And I really would love to encourage you to buy Ruby's book. So we'll include all the links to that in our show notes. And I think what Ruby said about taking what is useful and finding out more, some things may relate to you, some things won't. And you can just find some really interesting little tidbits that will be really meaningful and and roll with them and I think that's a lovely concept and it's also beautifully illustrated like it is so gorgeous the illustration so get ready for your eyes to be very pleased well I can't wait to get my copy it's gonna be a moment so the book is out the 29th of October, so it's already out by the time you listen to this episode. And yeah, we really hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. And if you did, you know what would really we would really love and what makes us really happy is when people leave reviews. So if you... Yeah, not to beleaguer the point, guys, but it's really important. <laughs> We're an independent podcast and it means the world to us, not just because you guys are listening and leaving your feedback, but because we live in a world full of algorithms and we need to F the system. So help us do that. Leave a review. Yes, please do. And it just it makes our days when we um, get cute little reviews. So whatever streaming service you're on right now, just, you know, scroll down and leave a review and if it's unless you hate it then just just click away no you can you can leave a review if you hate it you're entitled to your opinion as well no that's true if you ever have anything that you want to either talk about or there's something on your mind and you go you know what these girls probably know nothing about this and I want to hear them struggle with this topic please send us an email badbehaviorpodcast at gmail.com I would love to talk about some stuff that our listeners are struggling with because that's the point of this yes. show. Yes. You know what's so funny is this whole conclusion is just us begging for people <laughs> to connect well, with because us. Well, because it just makes us so excited. You don't even know. We have had such beautiful messages from people on our, on our email and honestly, I think we talked about it for hours. It means the world to us that we have a support network that's growing every day. It just gives us so much joy and keeps us going making this show we all misbehave sometimes want to change the world indulge in some bad behavior